I'll read the whole psalm as we begin. If you like, you can stand with me. Just 13 verses. I'm reading from the NIV. In Psalm 21, for the director of music, a psalm of David. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. And surely you have granted him unending blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. Amen. You may be seated. Father, on this Palm Sunday, may your King be exalted in strength and might and glory and splendor and beauty and majesty and power. May his name, the name of Jesus Christ, be praised on this earth and in this church. May all of us, young and old, give praise to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to think about a song we already sang this morning. Most of you were in the room for it, but the first song we sang. Sing to the king who is coming to reign. You may not realize it, but that song and a lot of the songs we sing are highly political songs. There are people who say, you know, we shouldn't mix Christianity with politics, and and on the one hand, I agree, but on the other hand, Christianity is political. Jesus is political, and if you do not understand that, you do not understand Christianity or the king we worship. And the song we sang this morning is a highly political song. Listen to the lyrics. Sing to the king who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the lamb that was slain. Life and salvation his empire shall bring. Joy to the nations when Jesus is king. That is a political song stating that we recognize Jesus as king. We belong to his empire and we are citizens of his kingdom and we want his reign to be forever and ever. So we sing to him. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and before we belong to any earthly kingdom, that is our highest obligation, our highest standing, our highest priority. We belong to Jesus the king. 
And when we sing songs like that, they, we could call them maybe national anthems. If you look around at national anthems from around the world, certain themes will pop up. National anthems of different nations and countries will sing about allegiance to that empire. They'll sing about the, the beauty and glory of that kingdom. They'll declare the wish for a long, enduring reign. Um, for example, this is the national anthem of Japan. Translated in English, says, May you reign, continue for a thousand, eight thousand generations, until the tiny pebbles grow into massive boulders, lush with moss. That's the national anthem of Japan. It is a, a poem aspiring for longevity of the empire. National anthems also often glorify victory in war. That is another major theme of national anthems. The national anthem of Mexico says, Mexicans at the cry of war assemble the steel and the bridle and the earth trembles to its core to the resounding roar of the cannon. There's a victory in war theme to a lot of national anthems, to our own star-spangled banner. Sings of the flag continuing to fly, revealed by the rocket's red glare and bombs bursting in air. National anthems sing about devotion to an empire that reigns through battle and war. Psalm 21, you could say, is a national anthem for Israel. It's a song for the nation. Israel is a religious people, it is also a nation. And it had its songs that it sang together, glorying in the kingdom and its king. Psalm 21 is what is known as a royal psalm. There are certain psalms throughout the psalms known as royal psalms. And the royal psalms specifically focus on the king of the kingdom. They focus on the rule and reign of the king of Israel. There are songs about the king. And a royal psalm would be used in various contexts. Maybe in the coronation of a king, when a new king took the throne, royal psalms would be sung. Or when it was maybe the anniversary of the king's enthronement. Or as the king was going out to battle with the people, or returning from battle and victory, these royal psalms would be sung. And Psalm 21 is one of those royal psalms. We're not sure how and where it was used. We just know it was used to rejoice in the king and his triumph. And that is really the distinct emphasis of this royal psalm, Psalm 21. Each psalm has its own emphasis. Each royal psalm has its own emphasis. And the emphasis of this psalm, Psalm 21, is the God-given triumph of the king, that leads to the praise of the people, or to say it another way, we worship because the king triumphs. That's what Psalm 21 is all about. It's actually what Palm Sunday is all about. We worship because the king triumphs. That theme is reinforced by verses 1 and 13, which form the boundaries of the psalm, as the theme is repeated. Look at verse 1. It starts with the king worshiping. The king rejoices in your strength, Lord. 
How great is his joy in the victories you give. The psalm begins with the king praising. Now consider that for a moment, because that's huge. In this nation, the king is not glorified, but the king himself praises. The king himself, who is at the top of the nation, who is on the highest seat, he himself gives praise to somebody higher than he. The king is a lead worshiper, if you will. Imagine that. Imagine that in our day. The highest figure of authority giving praise to somebody else, bending his knee to somebody else, worshiping somebody else. That would be wonderful. That's what it was supposed to be in Israel. The king was to give praise to God, who was higher than he. And what is the content of his worship? Why does he worship? Well, he worships because of the Lord's salvation. How great is his joy in the victories you give. That word victories, uh, translated in the NIV as victories, in other translations, it might be translated salvation. You may not know what the Hebrew word is behind that. The Hebrew word that's translated victories or salvation is Yeshua. The Lord saves. The king rejoices in the salvation of the Lord in Yeshua, from which we get Joshua and, of course, Jesus. Now look at verse 13. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. We will sing and praise your might. Who is singing now? Well, it started with the king rejoicing in the strength of the Lord. And now we will sing and praise your might. The king worships, which leads to the people worshiping. He is the worship leader. And because the king praises, the people praise. Because when the king is blessed, the people are blessed as well. And what is good for the king is good for the people. In our system of government, we have term limits on presidents, so they rotate, and that's a good thing. I like that system. In Israel, in a monarchy, you don't want constant turnover on the throne. Constant turnover in a monarchy is usually a sign of instability, of a nation under attack, of kings being deposed and queens being deposed and another uh, nation's overpowering. And that is a sign of instability. So what people want is a long reign of the king because a long reign of the king in a monarchy, a long reign of the queen in a monarchy will produce stability. It will be good for the people. And the king becomes a representation of the nation's success. If the king is blessed, we will be blessed as well. And we can celebrate vicariously through him so that when the king rejoices, we rejoice. And we do this all the time in our own political victories. When our candidate wins, they celebrate and we celebrate with them. With our sports teams, when they win, which happens more or less depending on who you follow, but when they win, we rejoice with them. Now, we are not playing. We're not on the field or the court. But when they celebrate, we're celebrating. And that's what's going on here. The king rejoices and praises, so the people come along and praise with. We worship because the king triumphs. Now, what exactly is the king worshiping 
for, what's the reason for the king's worship and the people's worship. And that's what the rest of the psalm goes on to talk about. And there's two things that cause the king to rejoice and the people to praise. The first is found in verses 2 through 7. And the reason for the king's rejoicing is that the Lord has given the king deliverance. That's what's going on in verses 2 through 7. It's a psalm probably in the context of battle, a military struggle, and the king is rejoicing because God has saved him and blessed him. God has given him victory. The Lord has given the king deliverance. So he praises for that deliverance and the blessing. Verse 2 through 7, You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him. Length of days, forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him unending blessings. Made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. This is all about what the Lord has done for his king. How he has blessed him. In verse 2, how he has answered the prayers of the king. What would a king pray for? What would somebody with all power and all authority, what are the kind of things they would pray for? Probably pray for that to continue. Pray for longevity. And pray for military victory, for peace and security. And pray for God's help. All the things the king could not do on his own, God, help me. So the king praises God for placing a crown on the king's head, giving him rule and reign, a crown of pure gold, symbolizing power and royalty. He praises God for giving him life, even eternal life. Look at the way that's worded. Psalm says, length of days, forever and ever. Is the king actually praying that he would live forever? Maybe it's a hyperbolic way of saying, long live the king. Or, the psalm may be saying, may the king's throne, through his descendants, through his sons, go on forever and ever. And that would be fitting with the promise of 2 Samuel 7.16, God gave the promise to David that his throne would last forever, that David's sons would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. It's a promise from God to King David, the great king of Israel, your throne will be established forever. And this psalm is echoing that promise, length of days, forever and ever. The king praises for unending blessing, the presence of the Lord. I would say that this is the very definition 
of blessing. The presence of God. Look at verse 6. You have made him glad with the joy of your presence. What is a blessed life? What is a joyful life? A hashtag blessed life is not found in having the the perfect room decor or the perfect occupation. I would say the hashtag blessed life is not even found in heaven itself. The blessed life is found in the presence of of God. There's a, a book John Piper wrote a, a few years ago called God is the Gospel. And in that book, Piper makes the argument that the, the greatness of the Gospel, the joy of salvation, what it is all about, is not necessarily in the things God gives to us through the Gospel, even heaven itself. The joy of the Gospel is that we get God, that we are with Him. He is what we get in the gospel. He is what Christ makes possible by dying for our sins, uniting us with God, that we are united to God and with him forever. And apart from that, there is no other blessing. Apart from union with the Lord, nothing else matters. So when we, and you know this, I think, increasingly with age, we gather together with family over the holidays, the joy and the blessing of that is not necessarily in the meals that we eat or in the gifts we exchange. That all is good and well. But the joy of it is that just that we're with each other. That we're together. And it shouldn't really matter what we do, but the point is we're together. And that's the joy of it. That's the thing you look forward to, the union, right? This is what Moses knew. That the promised land would not be the promised land if God was not there with him. So, when the Israelites rebel against God and sacrifice and worship to other gods, and God says, go out from me, I'm not going with you, Moses says, no. There is no promised land without you. There is no heaven without you. If we go there and you're not with us, we may as well die. The whole Everything of the good life is wrapped up in being with God in his presence. So that's where that's the, the culmination of this psalm of the blessings God has given and the deliverance God has given is all culminated in, God, you're with me. There's joy in your presence built on the foundation of trust and love. And look at verse 7. The king trusts the Lord and the Lord loves the king. The Lord has unfailing love for the king. There's another one of those Hebrew words that you should know. It comes up often for unfailing love or loving kindness or faithfulness. It's a Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed. Your covenantal, unfailing love. It's the kind of love God chooses to give to his people based on his promise, based on his faithfulness. They will never take away. Because God has given his unfailing love, the kingdom will not be shaken. So why the king praises? Because God has delivered him. 
the blessings of his love and his presence. That's why we praise. That's what our gathering every Sunday should be. Kind of at its essence. We gather and we praise God because he's delivered us. And though there is war all around us, though there is trial and trouble all around us, we come together as people who have been delivered and saved, and together we rejoice in that. I think that's what every Sunday should be, is a, a break from the fight and the trial and the hardship of life that we know are out there. Right? We live with life that is just hard and battles that are hard. And every Sunday we come together we say, thank God he's delivered us. From my own sin, from my own fighting, from others fighting with me, from hurt from others, from all of it. Praise the Lord, he's delivered us. He has given us his presence. And the Lord has given the king deliverance. The first reason for praise, the second in this verses 8 through 12, the second reason for praise, not what God has done, but what God will do. The Lord will give the king conquest. Verses 8 through 12 are all about the battles that the Lord will win for the king. A confident assertion the triumph that God gives, the Lord will give the king conquest. Verse 8. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you, and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. You will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Those are strong words. Those are words of power and victory. Those are actually violent words. We may struggle as we read them. These are causes for praise and worship, the absolute destruction of God's enemies. Think about the context, though, of Israel. They were religious people, but they were a nation. And they were a nation constantly at war, threatened on all sides. They had experienced captivity from Egypt, captivity under Syrians, captivity under Babylon. They had oppressors on all sides. They were constantly at war. And if they were to be blessed and if they were to endure, the only way they would endure is if God dealt with their enemies. So you will, you will read psalms and praises about how God has delivered them and will deliver them from their enemies and will do so with violence. We have trouble understanding psalms like these and I think it's because we think we're not at war. Israel knew 
They were at war and knew they needed victory. So how is the Lord going to provide it? And the psalm expands on that, or expands on how God will provide victory with his right hand. Of course, does God have hands? He's a spirit, right? God is spirit, so he doesn't have hands physically. This is what's called an anthropomorphism, giving human traits to God. And God has a strong right hand, and the right hand was the one that wielded the sword for most people, unless you're a lefty. But for most people, the right hand was the strong hand. It was the sword-wielding hand. So God will seize all his enemies with his strong right hand. He will burn them in a blazing fire, consume them in fire. This burning up and consuming flames, that's an Old Testament picture of God's holy justice. You can think of Nadab and Abihu, those two guys who kind of corrupted God's altar, and they were consumed with fire that came out from the altar. Or think of Sodom and Gomorrah, burned up with fire that rained down from heaven. Or you think of Elijah and his contest with the prophets of Baal as God's fire, his holiness, his justice consumed the altar. But it's not just an Old Testament picture. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And how often does Jesus himself use the image, or the New Testament use the image of hell being a consuming fire? There's a blazing fire as God consumes his enemies with his holiness, with his wrath. That is what's being described here. God will wipe out his enemies to the point that he'll wipe out their descendants. Right? That is a threat. I'm not only going to wipe out your, you, I'm coming for your kids as well. God will destroy his enemies so thoroughly that all future generations will be wiped out. And Israel praises in this because they know as long as their enemies keep reproducing, they will never have peace. So the descendants will be wiped out. We praise God for it. And they will retreat and turn their backs as the bow is drawn. Now I couldn't help when I read this to think of a video game because that's just the way my mind goes. There's a Mario movie coming out this week. We're all very excited in our house. And if you've played a Mario game before, a recent one, you know what happens when Mario touches fire. It runs around uncontrollably and you can't control him anymore. That's the image that came to my mind when it says they'll turn their backs or run away, running away uncontrollably like a chicken with its head cut off. I think that's the image. It's the Monty Python run away. Charles Spurgeon refers to this as the retreat of the grand army of hell. And in battle, there is no greater joy than seeing your enemy turn their backs and flee. It means the battle's over. And I'm going to live. Because I'm no longer being attacked. They're retreating. They're running away. This is a picture of total victory. Nothing short of the wrath of God on his enemies. Verse 9, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and his fire will consume them. 
This is the praise of God's anger and his justice and his holiness being poured out on those who oppose him. There's some debate in verses 8 through 12 here as to who this is actually about. If you read the commentaries, there's debate. Is this the king who's in battle and waging the war, or is this God who's in battle? Like, who's the one pulling the bow? Is this saying the king is fighting that war, or is this saying God is fighting that war? And there's debate in the commentaries, and if you know me, you know my answer is probably yes. It's both, especially knowing who the king is. The king is the Lord. But one verse where it's very clearly, unequivocally, the Lord at work is here in verse 9. It is his wrath. Because only he has the right and the power to pour out his wrath. That is God's prerogative and God's alone to pour out his wrath on his enemies. That's why the New Testament will say, you know, don't seek vengeance. Vengeance is of the Lord. That's his work, not ours. You be at peace, but the Lord will be at war. And so he will pour out his wrath on his enemies. You might ask, how can God pour out wrath on people? Doesn't God love all people? And on one hand, the answer is yes. God loves all people. The, the rain, his blessing falls on the just and the unjust alike, on all people. And we know God desires that all be saved. So we know God, on one hand, loves all people, and yet, on the other hand, God has specific love for some people, those whom he has covenanted with, those who have his covenantal love, those who are his people, he loves them in a particular, peculiar way. And all those who are the enemies of his people will be God's enemies. Which is why when Jesus talks to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because the Lord is identified with his people. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 12. What did God say to Abraham in Genesis 12? Part of his promise to him, his covenant with him. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So from the very beginning, with God's people, all those who oppose the people of God will become enemies of God, and they will receive the outpouring of his wrath, which is, in some ways, an expression of his love for his people. Because God loves his people, there will be wrath for all those opposed to them. And Israel takes this promise and says, Yes and amen, we praise the Lord for his wrath on his enemies. Because it is an expression of his love for us. This is who God is according to your Bibles. A God who loves his people, but will also pour out his wrath on his enemies. That has always been the case in your scriptures. If there was a point in your Bibles where God was directly speaking and described who he was, would you not want to listen to that portion of scripture? When God says, here's who I am, this is what I'm like. We'd say, well, I'd want to listen to that. There's a point where God does that. Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses and God self-identifies. says, this is who I am. If you want to know who God is, take it straight from, I won't say the horse's mouth because that would be blasphemous, but straight from the Lord's mouth. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God merciful, compassionate, forgiving, 
to thousands and thousands. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations. For a thousand generations, he is merciful and compassionate and forgiving. That is his first identification. And at the same time, he will pour out his wrath on his enemies. This is the promise of God's coming judgment. The Lord will give his king conquest. Okay, now, why do we spend time on that? Why go over this psalm of all psalms on Palm Sunday? Because you need to understand the national anthems of Israel if you're going to understand what happened on Palm Sunday and how Palm Sunday became Good Friday. When Jesus, by his design, by his planning, by his intention, rides into Jerusalem on a colt, and there are people waving palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're rejoicing and praising because the Messiah has come. What is the expectation that is in their heads? What is the national anthem that's playing? Well, Psalms like Psalm 21. The Lord has given the king deliverance and the Lord is going to give the king conquest and here is the king. And what an exciting day because Israel was a nation in constant war under the thumb of Rome, under the oppression of their enemy and hallelujah, a Messiah has come. Maybe it would be that Psalm 21 Messiah who comes in conquest. So why is it that on Sunday we see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and on Friday we see crucify him? They didn't understand the nature of Jesus' war as king and who the true enemy was. They thought that the other nations were the only enemy. Our enemies are Rome. Our enemies are Assyria, Egypt, Babylon. Those are our enemies. The enemies are outside. They had failed to recognize that the greater enemy was within. That if the king was to come and conquer, and if the king was going to come and bring peace, and if the king was going to come and bring blessing and eternity and union with God, that the first enemy that needs to be conquered before all the enemies outside, the first enemy that needs to be conquered is the sin within. The judgment starts in the house of God. 
And if you don't understand that message, you don't understand Palm Sunday, you don't understand what the Messiah was sent to do when he came. When Jesus came, his first order of business was cleansing Israel, purifying Israel, conquering the greater enemy, the enemy of sin that was actually the enemy that caused them to be away from God. It was actually the enemy that caused them. If you know your Old Testament, know why God allowed other nations to conquer them. The reason was because they kept turning away from God. And that was the promise and the warning. You turn away from me, enemies will come and they will conquer you. So if that was going to stop happening, the first thing that had to be dealt with was their own sin. Listen up, church. The enemy is within before it's outside. Before you spend all your days worrying about the enemy out in the air or in the schools or in the government or in the temple down the road, the enemy is first inside your own heart and your own sin. That's the first evil that needs to be rooted out. And that is what Palm Sunday and Holy Week is all about. And Jesus came to do that work first. It's why the Passover turned into the Lord's Supper. The Passover, a celebration with bread and cup, celebrating God's deliverance from Egypt, their great enemy, turned into the Lord's Supper, celebration of bread and cup, how God had delivered from their own sin. That's the first enemy to be conquered, and that's what Jesus is all about, what the cross is all about. Deliverance from evil. Not against earthly kingdoms, but against spiritual evil. We read in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins, there's your great enemy, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. How did God do it? How did God make us alive with Christ, united with him, forgiven of sins? Here's how. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away. He's defeated it. Nailing it to the cross. And, here's the other enemy, having disarmed the powers and authorities, having defeated them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here is first where Jesus triumphed by canceling our debt of sin. And we praise for that reason. Now, here's the warning. There's another triumph coming. Psalm 21 will be fulfilled. Jesus first conquered the enemy of sin. Jesus will return. And he will conquer all the enemies of God. As we close, turn to 2 Thessalonians in your own Bibles. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1. Second Thessalonians 1 borrows language from Psalm 21 and other psalms like it. Second Thessalonians 1 is a warning. 
of what will happen when the king comes back in triumph. God is just, verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Paul speaking to the church. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified, this holy people to be marveled at among all those who have believed. The king will triumph. And this is the warning to all those who oppose him and his people. The warning is everlasting destruction. The promise is everlasting life and peace with him if you believe. You may have heard the terms, just very quickly as we close, the terms the church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant describes the church as it is now, not that we go out and fight battles with swords, but that we are in the middle of a battle. And the church militant is the church that is still at work and still has a mission to carry out, and is still fighting. Our weapons of war are different. Our weapons of war are the cross, the word, forgiveness, prayer, love, and sacrifice. Those are our weapons. But we are at war, and that is the church militant. And we are the church militant until Jesus comes and returns. And when he returns, we will be the church triumphant, the church in glory the church at rest and at peace. Why? Because the king will triumph and we will praise with him. Would you pray with me? Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, for the coming of your king, for the return of Jesus, to put an end to our war, an end to our strife, an end to the sin in us, and that we may rejoice eternally with him where all is good in your presence. We pray for that day, Lord, and while we pray for that day, we thank you for what you have already done, for the victory already established in Christ and his cross, that he has already conquered our greatest enemy, the sin within, that he has conquered spiritual evil, that Jesus has won the battle, and we rest in his victory. So while we're at war, loving this world, we're at rest, knowing that Jesus has already won, and we praise you for it, and look forward to that day we will praise you forever. Amen.